Please stand as you are able for the reading of today's scripture from Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These are the words of the first and the last who was dead and came to life. I know your affliction and your poverty, even though you are rich. I know the slander on the part of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Beware, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison so that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have affliction. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Whoever conquers will not be harmed by the second death. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. I want to add my word of welcome to the Chosen Frozen this morning, and it's so good uh, to see all of you here. There was a time last night, about every hour on the hour, I was looking out the window uh, thinking about whether or not we would be together today, and it's so good to see you. Uh, I, I want to say a special word of thanks, and if you see them, say a special word of thanks to our maintenance crew. Uh, for the good work. They were here very early, making sure that the walkways were clear, and we're always grateful to the good work that they do, the ministry that they do among us. And uh, Allison, thank you for that priestly prayer. Uh, you're right about that affirmation of faith. That affirmation of faith, the social creed of the United Methodist Church, was written 33 years ago in 1986 in Nairobi, Kenya, where there was a gathering of the World Methodist Council, people came from all over the world. And as they worshiped and studied the Word and prayed together, they began to assemble this creed. By the way, it's in your hymn book, number 886. And I thought it was especially appropriate on this Martin Luther King Jr. holiday weekend for us to share in that together as we continue this series, which we're calling Defying Gravity with this reading that Teresa has shared for us, a rather bizarre reading as is Revelation as a whole. I want to remind you of a couple of things that we've talked about in this series to begin with as we are now in our third week on the study of Revelation. Key points, first of all, the book of Revelation is not really a book, it's actually a letter. It's a pastoral letter and it's apocalyptic in nature. Apocalyptic literature is crisis literature. It's crisis writing. What we know about this book is that it was written somewhere perhaps around 95 in the Common Era to disciples of Christ who were facing enormous pressure, not in spite of their faith, but, but because of their faith in Christ. In fact, it is written by a pastor. Some believe this was the Apostle John, perhaps it was, or a prophet named John, who is himself in crisis, facing his last days, incarcerated on an island out in the middle of the Aegean Sea, 40 miles from the coast of western Turkey, and he himself is in crisis 
because of his preaching, because of his witness for Christ. I was reading recently that that is still the case in many places today, and you're aware of that. David Curry, who is the president and CEO of Open Doors, a ministry that reaches out to Christians who are struggling with persecution, recently said at a meeting of the National Press Club that no less than 215 million Christians today are facing harassment, persecution of some form because of their faith. And then he named the top 50 countries in the world where it was most dangerous to worship Jesus. Of course, the top of the list was North Korea, and many others within the top 10 were in the Middle East. And by the way, we're remembering, especially in our prayers, our team that's in Beirut, that's coming back from Beirut. They're ministering with people in Lebanon to a one and a quarter million Syrian refugees who are in that area. And we, as the global church, are part of this Brentwood initiative, this Middle East initiative. But this is crisis literature, and so when you read Revelation, you need to understand that this is writing in the midst of a crisis. Secondly, this letter is a reminder to believers who are struggling that the risen Christ is not oblivious to their need, that the triumphant Christ is not indifferent does not disregard. God is not unaware. He knows our plight. And that in spite of all evidence to the contrary, God is still on the throne. And God is at work interceding, intervening in ways we know not to ultimately deliver His people from distress. In chapters 2 and 3, which we're focusing on for the next several weeks, John the prophet addresses each of the seven churches in Asia Minor specifically. In fact, these are letters within the letter that are addressed specifically to each community. Last week we dealt with the church in Ephesus, and today we turn to the church at Smyrna. What you may notice is that these remarks to Smyrna are very unique. For one thing, this is the shortest of the seven letters. In fact, it's only four verses. Now, I know that's intriguing to many of you because many of you value brevity. You've told me that yourself. Shakespeare said, brevity is the soul of wit. And I fear that sometimes because of my lack of brevity, I'm a dimwit in certain ways. And we can go on and on and on sometimes. Uh, We like brief phone calls, yes? I like short texts. I prefer them. I like brief emails. Some of you like brief worship services, and some of you like brief sermons. In fact, there are three rules to communication. You've told me this. Be sincere, be brief, and be seated. (laughs) So when you hear Teresa read the text this morning, you have high hopes that perhaps we'll get out of here a little early, not so fast. I hate to disappoint you, but the fact is sometimes the shorter the text, the longer the sermon. Sometimes. Somebody sent me an email the other day with a little slide in it. It kind of hurt my feelings. It said this. It was a billboard outside of a church. Come here, our pastor. He's not very good, but he's short. I will protect the guilty, at least from this place, 
But I thanked him, said, God bless you, and said, you don't have to be that subtle. It's a short letter. The other thing that's unique about this address to Smyrna is you may notice it has no critique in it. You remember last week we mentioned that the form in each of the seven churches in these letters is the same, that each of the churches receive a commendation, good job, and a word of critique. But this church only gets commendation. And so that ought to be a question in your mind. Why is that? Is this the perfect church that we've been looking for? Is this a church that has no personality issues, no flaws, no concerns? Of course not. But now is not the time for critique. John knows it. The Smyrna church is in a very difficult predicament. They are in dire need of encouragement. It's a church that's in need of validation. It's a church that needs affirmation. And by the way, isn't it true that good leaders, good leaders always know when to give a pat on the back and when to give a kick in the pants. And sometimes the church needs a kick in the pants. Ephesus got one. They got both, commendation and critique. We talked about it last week, and John could really shuck the corn. He said, look, I appreciate your toil. I appreciate your hard work. I love your discernment. I love how you have tested false prophets and found them to be false. I love your commitment to orthodoxy, but this I have against you. You have forgotten how to love. You have abandoned your first love. It was a kick in the pants to Ephesus. But in Smyrna, John withholds his criticism because these folks are on the struggle bus. These people are facing an uphill battle because of their faith. In fact, I think you could make the case for the fact that Smyrna may have been in the top 50 list. It may have been number one in terms of being the most difficult town in Asia Minor to practice your faith. Allegiance to Jesus there was pretty risky. In fact, most of you know that, it, that in Smyrna, that was the place where mid-second century Bishop Polycarp would be martyred because of his faith. In 156 in the Common Era, John knew that this was a church that did not need criticism. This was a church that needed to be lifted up. Now, let me give you a little context. Smyrna was the first city in Asia Minor to actually build a temple to the goddess Roma, 193 BCE. Smyrna became the epicenter of emperor worship. In fact, they had a deep allegiance to Rome so that when the national anthem was played there, if you dissed the Roman eagle, it was a capital crime, punishable by death. Furthermore, at the time that this letter was written, Domitian was the ruler. He was the emperor in Rome, and he, through legislation, demanded to be worshipped. In fact, Caesar worship became the law, and this was a problem for Christians. It still is. It's interesting to me that the original confession of faith in the first century was not the Apostles' Creed. That was fourth century. 
105 words. But in the first century church, in the early church, three words, the original confession of faith, Jesus is Lord. And that's still our confession. We as Christians are exclusive in our confession, but we are inclusive in our conduct. But to say Jesus is Lord in Smyrna, you better watch your back. To say Jesus is Lord is to say that Caesar is not. And in Smyrna, I can tell you the soldiers didn't look the other way when you refused to bow the knee. I'm telling you, it was a tough place to be a Christian. We know in that day, about the turn into the second century, that while there were three million Jews, about 50 in every thousand, there was 1.6 Christians in every thousand. It was a minority. Maybe across the world at this point, no more than 100,000 Christians existed. But the governmental authorities saw them as troublemaking, and so there were people in Smyrna, if you can believe it, who were actually boycotting Christian businesses. There were disciples of Christ whose property was being confiscated and vandalized merely because of their confession of faith. Some were victims of looting and mob violence. It's in the history books. And so here's John, himself in crisis, speaking for the risen Christ, and all he has for them is commendation. I want to encourage you. I feel you, is what he's saying. I know your pain. I've been there and done it. I know your affliction, verse 9, and your poverty, even though you are rich. Now, that's peculiar. What's he talking about? They're rich in soul, yes, but they're poor in body. What's he doing? He's lifting them up. I don't know why this is true, but I've noticed this in 36 years of ministry, that sometimes the richest churches have everything but the Spirit, while the poorest churches have nothing but the Spirit. I think it's because sometimes I have too many props, and so it takes a little longer to come to the end of yourself when you can lean on yourself. But like the prodigal, all of us finally come to the pig pen, to the end of ourselves, where we recognize Jesus is not just the best solution. He's the only solution. But it's a tough road to hoe in Smyrna. In addition to the conflict with the state that is now threatening their liberty, watch this, they're also facing difficulty in the church establishment, in the synagogue. In fact, John says they're being slandered by the synagogue. Now, this is pretty hard language, but John is saying there are some in the synagogue, some Jewish leaders, uh, who are beginning to distance themselves from the Christians. Verse 9 says, I know the slander on the part of those who say that they're Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. That's pretty, pretty tough language. You need to remember that the gospel began in the synagogue. The gospel began as a Jewish renewal movement. So initially, all the Christians were necessarily Jewish. But as time went on, as the movement began to grow and flourish, particularly among the Gentiles, non-Jews, some of the Jewish leaders felt 
that the church was becoming a little too accommodating to the culture. And there were some in the synagogue who said, we're losing our traditions here. There were also many who could not accept a Galilean peasant who died a criminal's death to be the Messiah. And so those belonging to the way were now being actually expelled from the synagogue. And frankly, frankly, some of the Jewish leaders, understandably so, were concerned that their association with these Christians might also bring trouble to the Jews. And so some of the leaders became moles, informants for the Romans. And John comes down pretty hard on them. And he essentially says that folks who do that are Jews in name only. Now pause it there for just a moment. We have to be very, very cautious with that text. This text has been rode hard and put up wet. It has been abused and misused to justify all kinds of anti-Semitism when the truth is the same thing can happen among us in the church. If we're not careful, we can become Christian in name only, without fruits, without risk, without justice, without mercy, without love. It is possible for us to become so individualized in our faith that we treasure more than anything else our own survival, our security, our status quo at the expense of self-denial, sacrifice, and cross-bearing. So for the disciples in Smyrna, I submit more painful than the persecution of the state was friendly fire in the body. Have you ever discovered friendly fire isn't so friendly? If you listen closely beneath the language of the text, I think you'll hear the cry of the people in Smyrna to whom John is writing. They are at the end of their rope. And you know what they're asking? They're asking this. To what extent must I remain faithful to Jesus? At what point may I deny my faith? When they make fun of me at school? When I lose my job? When my property is confiscated, when I'm fired or beaten, that's the question. To which John replies in verse 10 and 11, don't fear, don't be afraid what you're about to suffer. Beware, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison so that you may be tested, and for 10 days you will have affliction. Why 10 days? Because a prison in the first century is not a place of punishment, it is a place of detainment. And so you're only there for about a week and a half until your release or until your death. Ten days, a brief time, you'll have, you'll have affliction, but be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Whoever conquers, and the word conquer means overcome, who overcomes, whoever overcomes will not be harmed by the second death. What's that? The second death is more lethal than the first. It's eternal separation from God. 
I mentioned Polycarp a moment ago. Tradition says that Bishop Polycarp was personally discipled by the author of Revelation, by John, and that he was appointed Bishop of Smyrna at some point in his life, was martyred mid-second century and burned at the stake. Would you believe that he was 86 years old when he was martyred? You, you might think, we well, just let him run out of gas from here on out. 86, a senior citizen because of his faith. It is said that when the soldiers grabbed him to nail him to a stake, he objected. And this is what he said. Historians say, leave me as I am, for he who grants me to endure the fire will enable me also to remain on the pyre unmoved without the security you desire from nails. And with that, he prayed aloud his prayer, and the fire was lit, and his flesh was consumed. There was an eyewitness that day who chronicled what happened a year later who said this, it was not as burning flesh, but as bread baking or as gold and silver refined in a furnace. And everybody remembered what happened that day. Indeed, Polycarp is even spoken by the heathen in every place. He couldn't avoid the first death, but he avoided the second death, and he entered the kingdom with a victor's wreath because he was faithful to the end. Now, I'm thinking this morning, as many of you are, about another martyr who gave his life, 1968, he wasn't even 40, in our state, in Memphis, Tennessee. As a young adult, when I was a student at Emory University in Atlanta, I had the privilege of taking a class at Martin Luther King's church, his home church, Ebenezer Baptist. Dr. Joe Roberts was the pastor at that time, and I took preaching from Dr. Joe Roberts. I would often go a little early to class because I just wanted to walk around in that old sanctuary and see that pulpit where, where Dr. King Sr. thundered away for years and Martin Luther Jr. also. I'd sometimes go in there and just have a few moments to myself and then I'd see that organ where his mother was playing when she was gunned down by a man who came in during worship. I, it's hard to think of a family who has suffered any greater for their faith than the King family. You can still feel his influence on Auburn Avenue. On Tuesday, this past Tuesday, January 15th, he would have been 90 years old. He was born the same year that my father was born. And so I got up early on Tuesday morning, as, as is my custom, and I, I reread his letter from a Birmingham jail. You remember what had happened? He went to Birmingham in the spring of 1963 to protest exclusion at the lunch counters and they jailed him for disturbing the peace. And some of his friends, some of his ministerial colleagues, wrote an article in the paper the next day saying that Dr. King's protest was untimely and that he was something of an extremist. Boy, talk about friendly fire. He spent 11 days in a jail cell. Some of his friends said they had not seen him that depressed 
He didn't know if and when he would leave. And during his incarceration, he wrote a letter. It's apocalyptic. It's crisis writing. That's anything but brief. I'm not going to read the whole thing. It's 23 pages, although I'm tempted. I want to read this excerpt in which he addresses his colleagues about the charge of extremism. Listen to this. I was initially disappointed at being categorized as an extremist, but as I continued to think about the matter, I gradually gained a measure of satisfaction for the label. Was not Jesus an extremist for love? Love your enemies, bless them who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who despitefully use you and persecute you. Was not Amos an extremist for justice who said, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream? Was not Paul an extremist for the gospel? I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Was not Martin Luther an extremist? Here I stand, I cannot do otherwise, so help me God. Was John Bunyan not an extremist? I'll stay in jail to the end of my days before I make a butchery of my conscience. Was Abraham Lincoln not an extremist? This nation cannot survive half slave and half free. And Thomas Jefferson, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all people are created equal. So, writes Dr. King, the question is not whether we will be extremists, but what kind of extremist will we be? Will we be extremists for hate or for love? Will we be extremists for the preservation of injustice or the extension of justice? And then he concludes with this. Remember, brothers, in that dramatic scene on Calvary's Hill that three men were crucified, we must never forget that all three were crucified for the same crime, the crime of extremism. Two were extremists for immorality and thus fell below their environment, but the one in the middle was an extremist for love and truth and goodness, and he transcended his environment. Perhaps, he writes, the South, the nation, and the world are in dire need of creative extremists. And then he apologized for the lengthy letter signed Martin Luther King, Jr. <laughs> On April the 4th, 1968, 39, he was cut down by an assassin's bullet and oddly, ironically, his funeral the next week, you know what week it was? It was Holy Week. <laughs> Martin could not avoid the first death, but there is a death greater than the martyr's pyre. There is a death greater than an assassin's bullet. There is a death greater than thorns and nails. And that is the spiritual death of being separated from God. Every one of us someday is going to wear a shroud. But for those who overcome, 
John says there's a victor's wreath. It's all about faithfulness. To what extent must I remain faithful? What kind of extremist will you be when you can see the end from the beginning? Paul says you can endure all things through Christ, who is your strength. Let those who have ears to hear, hear.